At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, on this Father's Day, we are going to be continuing a sermon series that we began a number of weeks ago called The Lord of the Earth. Now, inside of 2022, we have been walking through a number of different series that have been anchored in the book of Revelation. And we've seen that Revelation is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've seen him revealed as the Lord of the church. We've seen him revealed as the Lord of heaven. And over the last several weeks, we've seen him revealed as the Lord of the earth as he demonstrates his sovereignty over the earth in the days leading up to his return. Um, But I want to just acknowledge that as we head through this year, we've been in Revelation both on Mother's Day and on Father's Day. Now, on Mother's Day Sunday, as we were looking at Jesus as the Lord of heaven, I think very appropriately on our Mother's Day, we saw Jesus as the Lord of heaven. Everybody, ah. And now, on Father's Day, we're going to be looking at judgment. So, draw whatever conclusions you want to from that, my friends. Um, But we are going to be looking at a a great section of God's Word today as we look at Revelation chapter 14 and the first 13 verses, as we're going to be really in part six of this series, seeing the Lord demonstrating His sovereignty over this earth. Now, before we look at those verses together, I, I want to just set the stage for us by thinking of a reality of this world. The the world we live in offers us a a promise, at least a promise by this world's perspective. And that promise is this, you can have it all. You can have it all. You can come to church on Sunday and you can cheat people in your business on Monday. You can have it all. That's the promise of this world. And we we get taught that, friends, in every advertisement that we see. The advertisements that come our direction tell us this, you need to have this car. You need to live in this house. You you need to go on that vacation. You must wear these clothes. You should be eating these foods. Again and again and again, we get these messages. Not choose this instead of that, but pick this and that. That's the message of this world. And consequences are something that are largely forgotten or ignored by our world. But what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is it's not really a promise at all. In fact, it's a lie. It's a lie. We can't have this and that. Why? Because we're limited. We're limited in the amount of time that we have. We can't do it all. We're limited in the amount of resources we have access to. We can't own it all. And consequences are real. If we choose this instead of that, there will be some kind of consequence. We will reap some kind of harvest in our lives. Now, that's the world, that's the real world in which we all live. And as as Christ followers, uh, we know this to be true. We know that our days are numbered. We know that we're called to steward the resources that God has given to us and entrusted to us. And we know that there are consequences for the ways that we live our lives. And yet, the world that we live in tries to confuse that again and again and again. 
Now, friends, in Revelation chapter 14, what we see is a strong call for us to have our lives marked by one primary choice, and that is to be marked by the God who created us. This world invites us to be marked by this world, to have our lives ordered by the principles of this world. But there is a different way, and there is a better way. And this morning, we're going to see just what that is and why we should make the choice to follow God and to be marked by Him. So we're going to look at this today by looking at Revelation chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to Revelation 14. I want to read for us the first 13 verses of this chapter, and then we'll go back and make some observations to help connect the principles of what we see here to our lives. Again, the context of this is inside of the last seven years before Jesus comes back. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1 says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists, playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for their blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the smoke, of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now, friends, in, <coughs> excuse me, in these few verses, we're going to see some important things for our lives today. So what is it that we see in these verses? Well, they really organize around this very principle. Who marks your life? Who marks your life? Who is it that leaves the greatest impression on your life? Who is it that organizes your life? Who are you following? 
Now, inside of the book of Revelation, specifically in what we saw last week and this week, we see two options presented for us. Against the the backdrop and the canvas of the end times, we see two options that are there. The first option is that we find our lives most marked by the beast, by the beast of this world. Now, when we see that and we think about what we saw last week, we're reminded of the context of Revelation 13. Again, in the days leading up to Christ's return, so not this era, but an era that is yet to come. In the seven years before Christ returns, Satan will be exerting his influence upon the earth in a very aggressive way. And he will raise up one who is an antichrist who will provide leadership over the earth, leading them astray inside of a one-world government system. And this antichrist will also have, inspired by Satan, will also have a religious leader working with him. We saw that as a false prophet who will be trying to confuse people in calling all to worship the Antichrist as God. Now, the false prophet will come up with a system to guarantee that people will worship the Antichrist as God, and that system will be the establishment of some kind of a mark or sign or symbol. And if you worship the Antichrist as God, then you will receive this symbol, and it will allow you to be able to work and be able to buy goods and services. But if you don't worship the Antichrist, then you will not receive the mark and you will be subject to persecution in the world. Now, again, this is not talking about our life today, but it's talking about something that will exist in the world in the last seven years before Christ returns. And we are given warning of it in Revelation 13. And so that is what is being identified here by having the mark of the beast, having our lives organized around the principles of this world. Now, though that speaks of something that is yet to come in the end times, I do think that there is an expression of this that is at work today, not a a physical symbol of a mark of the beast, but simply having our lives most identified by the principles of this world. One option for us in our lives is to have the principles of this world be our God. Now, what would it look like for the principles of this world to be our God? Well, it means that ultimately our appetites are what drive us. If it looks good to us, if it feels good to us, it must be right. And if we are living our lives that way, we're living our lives primarily marked by the principles of this world, marked by the beastly principles of this world. So there is one way of living which is marked by the beast. But there's a second way of living that is identified in the verses we just read in chapter 14. And that is to have our lives not marked by the beast, but instead to have our lives marked by God. And this is really the the message of Revelation 14, verses 1 through 13. It presents for us, again, in in, in the perspective of the end times, a group of people who do not find themselves marked by the beast, but instead find themselves marked by God. Well, who are those people? Well, they're identified by a number, and that number is 144,000. 
says that in the end times, though almost all of the world will go to worship the beast as God, there will be those who, are, are, those who will be uh, held, called faithful and will worship Jesus as God alone. Their number will be represented by 144,000. And we saw a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 7 that that 144,000 is a representation of the nation of Israel coming back to God in mass, members from every tribe of Israel in the last days. And as they came back to God and, and placed their faith and trust in Christ in that last time, they are sealed by God and are made evangelists for God in the last era traveling the earth and pointing others to come to know Christ as Savior. Now, what's interesting is where, where they are. This group of 144,000 who are marked by God and not by the beast, where are they? Well, they're on Mount Zion. Now, where is Mount Zion? Well, on this earth, Mount Zion is another description of the city of Jerusalem. And so what we see described here is a group of 144,000 who have remained faithful to God, living in the last days, and they find themselves in the city of God in Jerusalem. Now, what is remarkable about this is seeing this connected to what we looked at last week in chapter 12. What we saw in chapter 12 is that Satan is out to get the plans of God. That's no surprise to us, right? And the expression of that in history is that Satan wanted to take Jesus out, but he was not successful. And so after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension to heaven, where did Satan turn his, his focus? It was to take out the people of God. And specifically in chapter 12, we saw that in the last days, Satan's focus will be to try to take out the people of God, specifically the nation of Israel. And we saw that the woman described in chapter 12 was a representation of believing Israel. And so it says the dragon became furious with Israel and went off to make war against her and her offspring. But God protects his people. And what we see in these last days leading up to that is the protection that God gives of Israel. And so for 1,260 days, he protects Israel, verse 6 tells us. Now, what, what is significant about 1,260 days? If you were with us last week, you might remember how long was the reign of the Antichrist going to be? 1,260 days. And so God is protecting this 144,000 while Satan is trying to eliminate them. And he does so in supernatural ways, swallowing up the anger that Satan is pouring out, swallowing it up like a river and enabling them to survive. So that when we get to Revelation 14, 1, where is the nation of Israel? They are protected and preserved even as Satan is trying to take them out. You see the picture of what is happening and transpiring at the time of the end. It's, a, it's an argument to God's faithfulness. It's an argument for why it's good to be marked by him and not the beast, because he ultimately is going to emerge victorious. And so we see this, this picture laid out, and we see it laid out against the canvas of the end times. 
But I, I want us to move beyond just the end times, and I want us to talk about our times, because we are not living in that era. And yet, our lives today can be marked by either the principles of this world or can be marked by God. That's, a, that's an option that is available to us today. What is going to mark our lives? Who marks you? And what would it look like if it was Jesus who was ultimately the one who was marking you? And why would we trust in Christ at all? Well, friends, this is what the rest of chapter 14 will tell us. I think it's interesting that in verse 12, we see this, this, organism, this, this principle uh, stated. Why are these verses given to us? They're given to us for this reason. It's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. These verses are given as an encouragement to us to stay strong, to continue to have our lives marked by Christ. And we see that in these verses. So what do we see in these verses that would encourage us to continue to be marked by him? Well, the first thing we need to do is to think about what does it look like for our lives to be marked by Jesus? And we see a number of things inside of these verses that point us in that direction. See, those who are living in the last days are, are marked by Jesus. They're marked by the Lamb. They're marked by the Father. And that leads to certain things in their lives. Well, one of the things it leads to is that their identity is found in him. It's interesting that these who 144,000 have the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. That's a pretty aggressive step, isn't it? It lets the world know whose they are. They are most identified by him. Now, if this is the case in the end times, what is the connection to our time? If we're to be marked by Jesus, what does it mean that our identity is in him? Does this mean that we all should go get a face tattoo? I don't think so. I'll let you draw your conclusions, but I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. I think what is being spoken of here is that we would find our primary identity in Christ, our primary identity in Christ. You know, very, we're very familiar with this little conversation that happens often. When you meet someone new or you're getting to know someone, you, you go through a, a set of introductions, don't you? Uh, tell me about yourself. Well, we begin by saying what? We say our name. We say where we're from. We say maybe what we do for a living. We, we talk about our family. We talk about our parents. We, we go through all these different things about our lives and we kind of list them. But let me ask you, how far down the list do you go before you get to really the most foundational principle about you? If you're a follower of Jesus, that actually is the most defining characteristic of you. And so when you think of introducing yourself, do you ever think of introducing yourself as, you know, who are you? Well, well I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. My name is Mark. I, I live in Norman. I've got a wife, Kimberly, and a son, Josh. And I've got great parents up in Bartlesville and great, uh, you know, parents-in-law and, and brother and sister, all this, all this kind of stuff, right? Like we, we think of all of those things that are true in our lives that we want to share, but there's something that's even more true of us. And that that is most true is whose we are. 
we are connected to our God and Savior. And so I just want to challenge you to think, how do you think about your life? What do you think most defines you? It begins with just a, an understanding that who we are in Christ is the most significant thing about us. I can imagine in the end times, every time they looked in the mirror, there was a reminder of whose they were. How might we encourage ourselves and our corporate community to always have in front of us this understanding that we are Christ's? Second thing that we might see about being marked by Jesus is that in this group in the end times, they worshiped God alone. They worshiped God alone. Now, where I see this in the passage uh, is, is something that, that we might not easily connect. And so let me walk through this. At the beginning of verse 4, this statement is made. It is these, those who are marked by Jesus in the end times, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, there are two possibilities of what that means. One possibility of what that means is that these are truly single men, the 144,000, who are not married and who are pure sexually. It is absolutely possible that that is what is being communicated here. But it's also possible that what is being communicated here is that they are faithful to their God. And we understand this because throughout the Old Testament, the idea of being unfaithful to a spouse is referred to as it relates to the nation of Israel often when they would wander and worship other gods. When they would worship other gods, they were described as an unfaithful spouse. I actually think that is what is being communicated here about those in the end times because we're talking here about the people of Israel. Now, is this talking about exactly what it says? It very well may be. But I think the bigger principle for us to, to look at and to acknowledge is that if we are marked by Jesus, then the most defining thing about us is our connection to God, and we will worship him and him only in our lives. We remain faithful to him. We gather on weekends to sing songs about him. Why? Because he is the one who should be exalted, not us. We, we take out our checkbooks and we, we organize the way that we invest the funds that God has given us stewardship over so that we might honor him the way that we handle them. That's what it means that we worship God alone. We think of our time and how we spend our time and we want that time to be connected to the things that matter most to God. Why? Because he is the one that we worship alone. See, friends, when we think of this idea, who is it that we're really married to? Who is it that we are allowing to most mark and organize our lives? Is it ourselves? Is it another person? Or is it God himself? Those who are marked by Jesus find their identity in him and they worship him alone. But a third thing that we see of these people is that they follow Jesus wherever he goes. This group in the end time, how are they described? They're described as people who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Friends, I, I don't know of a better description of Christians. Christians are not just people who believe something. That may be how we begin and how we connect and, and what we're called to continue to do, but the sum total of the Christian life is not just a mental exercise. It's a life of obedience following 
Jesus in every area of our lives. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. We follow him in obedience in every area of our lives. Will we do that perfectly? No. Did they do that perfectly? No. But that's the call and that's the identifier. If you want your life to be marked by Jesus, then begin to ask the question, what would it look like for me to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Now, I'll tell you a common mistake that we often make. A common mistake we often make is we assume that Jesus thinks exactly like we do. And so Jesus is just a more, a more moral version of me. And so I just think, well, what's kind of the moral thing to do? And based on my understanding, then that's what Jesus would want me to do. So I'm going to do that. But if we really want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, friends, we got to get into God's word to find out where Jesus is going. What's he doing? What does he care about? Don't leave it to just your own understanding of morality, but allow the picture of Christ in Scripture to point us in the direction of where we should follow him. If we're marked by Jesus, we find our identity in him. We worship God alone. We follow Jesus wherever he goes. And we also have an, under, an understanding that we are redeemed as his, that we are redeemed as his. I, I love this statement at the end of verse four. He says, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits or a gift, a presentation to God in the lamb. What does it mean to, to have Jesus die on the cross for our sins? It means that we have been bought. We have been purchased. The price for our release from sin and its consequences has been paid, but we've not been freed just to do any old thing we want to do. We've been freed from the anchor of our sin in order to sail with God on his boat. And so when we think about our lives and where we are headed, if we are truly marked by Jesus, then we know that our life is not our own. Our possessions are not our own. Our time is not its own. But we are merely stewarding the things he has entrusted to us. We are floating on his boat. We are redeemed as his. If we're marked by Jesus, what else do we know? Well, we also know that we are true and faithful witness. We're a true and faithful witness. Again, the group at the end times, there is a world system that is doing nothing but spewing and promoting lies. In great contrast to that world system that is promoting lies, stand the people of God who are blameless and who have no lies in their mouths. When they speak of the way to connect to God, when they speak of what is right and wrong, they are not speaking spin, they are speaking truth. If that's true of those in their time, in the end time, is that true of us in our time? Are we people who speak truth? Are we people who are blameless because we are clinging to the principles of God's word, and are we pointing people to the one true way for their forgiveness and for their hope? See, if we are marked by Jesus, friends, these things are true for us, but there's, there's even more. I love what he says here in verses two and three. There's a reminder that if, if we are marked by Jesus, then we have the privilege of adding a unique stanza to the song of praise that is being sung in history. 
Look at what it says of those in the end time in verses 2 and 3. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So this is talking about heavenly worship here. But then look at what it says right after that. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. In other words, the things we experience on this earth in this life create a unique opportunity for us to praise God as we follow him in this place and at this time. Others might be able to hear about it, but you're able to live it. Do you realize the things that the Lord has entrusted to you in this moment, in this time, in this season of your life are unique to you? I don't mean unique in the sense that they're unlike anything that's ever been experienced on the planet. I mean, those are things that people have experienced from the beginning of time. But you living through them is a unique moment. You living through the moments God has in front of you today, being marked by Jesus and following him in that place, give you an opportunity to add a unique stanza to the chorus of praise that is being sung in heaven right now. See, our lives matter. What we do matters. And we have a chance to uniquely, in this place, in our context, to walk with God in a way that brings him glory and honor, in a way that nothing else can or does. And so we see what it looks like for us to be marked by Jesus. But let me ask you the question. If this is what it looks like to be marked by Jesus, you know, why is it that we wouldn't choose to be marked by him? What are, what are some of the things that might keep someone from being marked by Jesus and living this life? What are some of the things? Well, we see a response in the declaration of various angelic and heavenly beings in verses 6 and following. Now, the first kind of why Jesus that we see is found in a proclamation of an angel in verses 6 and 7. And the principle is this, Jesus is for all time and for all people. You know, sometimes we think, well, yeah, I'm not going to choose to follow Jesus because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I'm not going to choose to follow Jesus because this just seems like something that is caught up in this moment in history. I'm not going to choose to follow Jesus because I want to enjoy my own time now. But the reality is that Jesus is for all time and for all people. And during this period of the end, while there are 144,000 in Jerusalem, God is going to continue to proclaim the gospel to the world to give people a chance to repent. And the way that he does that, specifically mentioned in these verses, is that he will send an angel flying in the mid-heavens, flying above this earth, proclaiming the gospel. It says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs 
of water. The angel is proclaiming not a temporal message, not something for some people in one time, but a message for all time. It's an eternal gospel. And it's not just a message for those that grow up in, you know, a a Christian home or a Christian subculture, but it's a message for people no matter your nation, no matter your tribe, no matter your language, no matter your tongue. This is a message that is necessary to respond to whether you are someone that grew up in Kansas or you're someone that grew up in India or in North Africa. The gospel is for all people, and it's imperative for all to respond and to be marked by Christ. We see the first angel reminding us of this reality of why Jesus. The second principle, though, comes from a a second angel. And this second angel is going to give another declaration, another announcement. And the principle that he's going to share is that the alternative sours and expires. If there are two possibilities, one is to be marked by God and the other is to be marked by this world, the second angel reminds us that if we find ourselves marked by this world, we find ourselves marked by something that will sour and it will expire. By sour, I mean it won't deliver what you think. It will maybe taste good in your mouth, the principles of this world, but it will sour in your stomach. And not only that, there will come a day where the principles of this world will be finally and fully dealt with. There is no future in it. This is made plain when the angel says this, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Who is Babylon? Babylon is a representation of the principles of this world. We'll see that a little more next week. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This world promises that we should live our lives on the basis of our desire, but there is no future in that plan. That's what we see in verse 8. The principles of this world will lead us to something that ultimately will not satisfy. There's a third thing that is spoken of that encourages us to choose Jesus And that third principle is a reminder that we will spend eternity someplace. It's a reminder that we'll spend eternity someplace. Inside of these verses, there are, just as there are two ways that our lives might be characterized, there also are two destinations where we will spend eternity. One of those destinations is hell, and hell is described in the most awful terms in verses 9, 10, and 11. It's a place of God's wrath being poured out in full strength. It's a place where people are tormented with fire and sulfur. The the word sulfur is also the word for brimstone. You ever hear about fire and brimstone? It comes from Revelation 14. In the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. See, hell is a real place, and if we have our lives marked only by the principles of this world, if we choose to reject Christ and what he is offering us, this will be the eternal destination where we will go. Hell is awful, but there's an alternative. God does not desire 
that we go there. God desires that we repent. And so he tells us that though hell is awful, heaven is awesome. And he says in verse 13, I I heard a voice from heaven saying, write these, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may have rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In hell, remember, there was no rest. But in heaven, there is rest. And blessed are those who are marked by Christ, who receive their reward in eternity. Friends, these verses are given to encourage us to trust in Christ and to stay faithful to him and live lives marked by him because it is absolutely worth it. Now, as we conclude, I want to just ask the question, what marks you? Who marks you? Now, if you're here today and you are just here checking things out, I just, I just want to encourage you, if you are here and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I would implore you this morning to trust in him, knowing the reality of what awaits you in eternity, knowing the weight of sin that all of us carry. I want to invite you to come to the one who was willing to bleed and die for you, who invites to redeem you from your enslavement to sin and connect you his purposes and bless you for all time. And he's inviting for you to trust him and to follow him wherever he goes. Would you trust in him? The second question is, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, are you willing to follow him wherever he goes? Where is he leading? Well, we read to see where he's leading, but are we willing to follow him in obedience and in faith? And then the third thing is just a a question. Will we be angels of our era? Will we be those who, like the angel in the era to come that will fly in the midheaven and proclaim the gospel to all, might we be God's vessel in this era to tell others around us of the care and comfort and provision that are found in Christ. Friends, who marks your life? Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for just the opportunity to look at your word today and be challenged by it. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage uh, this morning to, to think rightly of our lives and to really do an inventory and, and ask what is, the, what is it and who is it that is most marking our lives? Lord, for any that have never placed their faith and trust in you, I pray that this morning they would do so, that they would lay down their lives at the foot of the cross, that they would worship you alone and find their identity in you. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would not just do that, but that we would, we would follow you wherever you go in obedience and proclaim the hope of the gospel to all you bring in our path. We thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness and your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.